Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, are we finally getting close to a child care deal here in Ontario? And if so, what took them so long? We'll talk about that. What are the best ways to keep Canada's food supply strong while the cost of food is outpacing inflation? And is this shortage really being caused by this truck convoy? And tensions continue to rise in the Russia-Ukraine border. Peter Grafe, the political science professor at McMaster University, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to get back into this issue about uh, the National Daycare Program uh, that we talked about. Uh, as we mentioned on this program a couple of days ago, Ontario is the only jurisdiction in Canada now that has not signed on to the deal. But uh, judging on by some of the comments that the Premier made the other day, uh, there could be good news on the way for families who are stuck paying outrageous amounts of money for daycare. Global Sandy Salerno has details. Ontario is now the only province or territory that hasn't inked this federal deal with Ottawa to get daycare fees down to $10 a day. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says negotiations continue. Those discussions are ongoing. They continue this week as they have over the past weeks with the single aim of a fair deal for Ontario families. But childcare advocates don't get what the holdup is. If we want to see this be sustainable, I think the best thing for the Ontario government to do is sign on as soon as possible and get the ball rolling. Because once we have these programs in place and fees are lowered for families, I think then we're going to see sustainability. Toronto Star reports a deal is close and could be signed very soon. The big issue they have to settle is what will happen after the initial five-year agreement ends. Ontario doesn't want to end up with that bill. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Well, let's get some clarity on that. And to do that, we are pleased to welcome back to the program, uh, Karina Gould. Uh, Karina, of course, is the member of parliament for Burlington. She's also the minister of families, children and social development. And of course, that's her portfolio that's looking after uh, this file. Uh, minister, great to have you back on the show. Hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I am. And I hope you are, too. We're hanging in here, uh, committing <laughs> for the province to sign on here. And I'm sure you are, too being the only jurisdiction that's left. Let, let me ask you, and, I, and, and again, I, I just want to preface our comments that this morning uh, and remind our listeners that, that, that you, you don't want to negotiate in the media. We understand that. But there are a couple of points that the Premier and, the, and Minister Lecce have made uh, that I know that you and your group are, are, are trying to focus on here. Uh, one of them is long-term commitment. And I know you touched on that the last time you were with us, but let's maybe go back over that ground once again, because there seems to be almost an insinuation here by the province that, well, yeah, this might be good for five years, but then they're going to turn their backs on us and we're going to get stuck with the bill. Uh, explain to us what your government's commitment is and, and under that guise of long-term commitment to this program. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, let me just say that, you know, we've signed agreements with 12 of the province and territories. Ontario is the only one that hasn't signed on. And this has not been an issue for any other province and territory because they know that in the fiscal framework for the federal government, there is ongoing funding every year after year five. And they also know, um, as does Ontario, that I will be introducing legislation this spring to effectively lock that in. So even though it's already there, we want to put it in legislation because as you know, we heard, unfortunately, in the last federal campaign, um, Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, would have gotten rid of this program. So we're going to make that really hard for a future conservative government to do. Um, and the other thing is, is the reason why we signed five-year agreements is because we're building a whole new system. We're doing something we've not done before. And we have benchmarks and objectives to meet within those five years because we want to make it work. And so 
negotiating something longer than that doesn't give us the possibility to really reassess and pivot as needed. So, you know, as I've said to uh, Minister Lecce, as the Premier knows, the federal government's in there for the long haul. Um, Every other province and territory sees it, gets it. Um, So let's hope Ontario does too. And just my observation, I know you don't want to get out on that limb, but I will. It's kind of looking as if, well, at this stage of the game, since they're going to be the last one into the the fold here, uh, they're trying to, I think, fashion this in some way to make it look as if they've extracted something from you in in negotiations. But that point, and I'm glad you brought that up again, you've already made that point. You've made it to everybody else who signed on to this right now that there is a commitment here and they understand the commitment. So I'm not quite sure exactly why they're, they're grasping in that and suggesting that that's going to be a concern. The characterization that uh, the premier used yesterday, uh, Karina, was we're very, very close. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I'm I'm really encouraged to hear the premier say that because I think that's a really positive sign that the province um, has decided that they really do want this agreement. So I think that's a really good sign. There's still um, some substantial work left to do. I think we've talked about this before. Um, you know, the way that it's worked with every other province and territory is that we, and including Ontario, we sent them last July what their federal allocation would be. And then we asked each province and territory in return to send us a plan on how they propose to meet the federal objectives, which just as a reminder for listeners are to see a 50% reduction in fees for licensed care at this year, get to 10 dollars a day by 2526 increase the number of spaces um, available so that we're growing the system, support uh, ECEs by putting in place wage grid, um, ensuring training is there um, and other supports, and making sure that um, that early learning and childcare is of high quality and is, a, is inclusive. So every other province and territory uh, sent us back that plan and that formed the basis for the negotiations and then for the agreements that were signed themselves. Um, We have been having, you know, particularly since December, some really good, uh, deep conversations with Ontario. They've been meaningful, but we're still waiting for them to send us that plan. Um, And so once we get that, my experience has been with the four other agreements that personally I've negotiated, uh, things can move really quickly. So I'm certainly encouraged to hear the Premier say that we're very, very close. So hopefully that also means they're going to send us uh, what their proposal is to meet those federal objectives. And then hopefully we can reach an agreement soon. That is is kind of politics 101, though, isn't it? I mean, we're not just going to write you a check and say, here, go have a good day. Uh, I mean, there's got to be a game plan. There has to be a way to disseminate the money. Uh, and and I know you told us that months ago that every other well jurisdiction, territory, and province has already done that. Uh, I, I'm kind of stymied here as to why they haven't submitted something like that. And clearly, they've thought about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question, and um, it's one that you know we've we've very clearly communicated uh, to the province. Um, you know, and and it's been you know something that's important because as you mentioned you know we're we're not just going to send a a, a blank check right I mean we want to ensure uh, that what we have you know promised to families in Ontario which is those fee reductions that space creation supporting ECEs that we actually see that take place Um, and so you know and and it's not something new I mean Ontario has submitted um, plans for other transfers uh, that we've sent with regards to early learning and childcare. so it, it really is something that's important because again it it forms the basis of of the agreement and it's what allows us to track against benchmarks um, and to demonstrate progress 
Well, and I, that's the thing that I'm sure the minister and the premier understand. There has to be a benchmark. In other words, you know, how do you judge success? Well, it's based on what you wanted to do as opposed to, and then, okay, how are you doing down the road? And we heard that earlier this week. I know you were pretty happy to hear that. Even the province of Nova Scotia says uh, they've seen some positive impacts already. Uh, now, they were one of the first ones to jump on here just a little while ago. Uh, but it seems as if the impact was immediate. So, you know, the sooner you get in here, the sooner you can start to, I guess, benefit from it. Sure. And I mean, you know, we've already seen parents in other jurisdictions receive those reductions in fees. So Saskatchewan, Alberta, Nova Scotia, um, you know, other provinces and territories are working towards those objectives. Um, and, you know, for every week and month that we don't have an agreement uh, here in Ontario is another week and month that parents uh, and educators are going to have to wait, um, you know, for for what will be really transformational in terms of both, you know, their bottom line. I mean, you know, parents are paying in, in our communities, you know, between $1,200 and $1,500 a month. It's good for kids and it's really, really good for the economy. So, you know, we are facing a bit of a time crunch because the end of the federal fiscal year is March 31st. And so certainly, you know, my objective is, is not to see the, you know, over a billion dollars in funding that Ontario families are entitled to this year. Um, Laps, um, and then of course there's the provincial election coming up. So you know there's there's some pretty um, tight timelines uh, to get this done. And you know I just want to assure families um, listening that you know I'm a mom in Burlington with a chick with a kid in childcare. You know I want a fair, good deal for Ontario families, and uh, I'm laser focused on getting this done. One of the points that Minister Lecce brought up the other day, I'd, I'd like you to comment if I could as well, Minister. Uh, and it had to do with uh, their assertion, meaning uh, the Ontario government's assertion, uh, that uh, that some of these costs should actually go into the uh, the money that uh, the province, I think he, he, uh, over $3 million he talked about, uh, that spends on full-day kindergarten uh, for four- and five-year-old children, a program that's been in place for a number of years here. Uh, I don't know, maybe you could put this in perspective vis-a-vis -vis the negotiations you've had with the other territories and provinces, uh, who also have kindergarten, by the way. Uh, is the government here trying to conflate the education program with the early learning education program here? Yeah, so I mean, look, we recognize Ontario's leadership in full day kindergarten. It is excellent. And there are many other provinces and territories that would like to emulate it. Um, and some who are already on that path. What is really important about this agreement, though, and this national plan is that it's additive. It's not about underwriting or subsidizing provincial existing costs. It's about building and growing the system. So it's fantastic that Ontario has full day kindergarten and I can't wait to send my son to JK uh, in September. But the idea really is about reducing those costs for childcare. You know, Ontario families pay some of the highest fees in the country. Mind you, Metro Vancouver and Iqaluit are quite similar to what people downtown Toronto and Ottawa are paying. Um, but it's really about reducing those fees, growing the number of spaces, building the system. And so it's adding on to what we already have so that more people can benefit from it. So this is a companion piece uh, to what we already have here with all-day kindergarten. I, I was a little bothered by the, the, the comments that the minister made because it, it almost seems as if he was insinuating that all-day kindergarten is, is a form of childcare, and that's certainly not the purpose of it. It's, a, it's, a, it's the, the education program. It's a totally different circumstance altogether. Uh, but that was one of the lines that people that were opposed to all-day kindergarten would use from time to time. All you're going to do is babysit the kids. And, uh, and I think we've found here in Ontario especially that it's much, much more than that. Uh, is is that a, a deal breaker for you? Or do you think there's some uh, some middle ground that can be attained here? 
Well, look, full day kindergarten, um, as I've said from the beginning, is, is out of the scope um, of the agreement. This really is about childcare. Um, of course, early learning is part of that. And we know that to have quality childcare, early learning needs to be part of it. But we're not um, going to underwrite the costs of what provinces and territories are already paying for. And certainly in all of the other agreements, it has been about how do we grow and expand the system? And that will be the case in Ontario as well. Yeah, we're getting into, a, I guess, a, a, a discussion here about, I mean, who pays for what in situations like that? Education. Uh, this is a federal program, of course, that uh, that you'll be uh, you know paying for. Uh, kindergarten, of course, is under the provincial jurisdiction. I guess it's really, it's a kind of an apples and oranges comparison. Uh, but anyway, I, that's uh, for, for you and I guess the Ontario folks to hammer out. Uh, the Premier said that uh, maybe by March there could be a deal. Uh, uh, are you comfortable with that? Or do you feel that there's a way to accelerate the process here? Because as you say, I get emails after every time you come on the program here, Minister, say, well, come on, when are they going to get this thing done? I mean, Ontario families right now are, are saying, come on, everybody else is getting the deal. What about us? Oh, well, like, as the Prime Minister said on Monday after we announced Nunavut, like, we've been ready to sign with Ontario since July. Um, you know, we are absolutely there. They know how much money is on the table. They know what the objectives are. Um, and we've been having good conversations. Like, Minister Lecce and I speak on a regular basis. Um, and so I, I think particularly with what the Premier is saying, uh, that's a really positive sign. And let, let me just be very clear to anyone listening, like an agreement is totally possible. Like we've done it with every other province and territory. So we just need Ontario to, you know, come fully to the table and say, this is what they want to do and uh, show us what their plan is so that we can make sure that it's going to deliver for families in Ontario. So I remain optimistic. I'm encouraged by the premier's words. And I just want to ensure that everyone who's listening to me knows I'm a mom in Ontario with a kid in daycare, I want to get you the best deal possible. I, I got 10 seconds. I know you're running late, but one other question just for the sake of clarity here, because I just got an email from uh, one of our listeners about this, because uh, you've told us previously that there is some flexibility within this program between province and province as to how it's actually going to roll out. But is the funding envelope the funding envelope? In other words, uh, when you sit down and say, this is it, Ontario, that's all that's in the envelope right now, or is that is that flexible too? No. So it is $10.2 billion, which as we've discussed is a lot of money and it is going to go a long way. We have a federal allocation for every province on territory, which is based on the zero to six population in that province or territory of, you know, a $28 billion total national program. Ontario is getting $10.2 billion. I mean, it is its fair share based on its per capita allocation. Um, and so we're quite confident that we can reach an agreement within that allocation. Busy day for you, Minister. I appreciate you taking some time with us today. Thanks so much and good luck. Hopefully uh, you'll be on here the next little while with some good news about this. Oh, I certainly hope so. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Karina Gold, the uh, MP for Burlington, and of course the Minister of Families, Children, and Social Development, uh, trying to get Ontario on side here. The only jurisdiction left in Canada that isn't signed on to the child care program yet, hopefully. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a lot of information, and frankly, there's a lot of misinformation that's going on these days about uh, what's happening. Uh, first of all, there's the protest, then there's the supply chain issues, and then there's inflation, which is, uh, of course, having, a, a, well, in our minds anyway, a negative impact on pricing. And a lot of people are trying to conflate all of those issues. And, well, what do you usually do when you're ticked off about something? You blame the people you elected. Uh, so there's a lot of anger being directed to the government right now. 
Uh, I, and there were questions asked yesterday uh, with the Prime Minister. He uh, was asking, uh, being asked rather, about exactly what's going on and uh, is is this uh, vaccine mandate for uh, cross-border truckers actually affecting things like supply chain? And uh, he touched on a couple of different things in his response uh, and basically saying, look, at the vaccination efforts, by the way, do have the support of the majority of Canadians. I believe the last survey we talked about here had something like 65%, and I think that's a number that's increasing right now, uh, favor what's going on. And there's a recent poll that was done basically asking, do you support what the truckers are doing? Only uh, 28% of the people in that survey uh, supported them. So there is that. Uh, the Prime Minister also uh, brushed off uh, some concerns about the empty grocery store shelves that we've been talking about and says it's not because of the vaccine mandate. The challenges and disruptions to the global supply chain right now are due to COVID-19. And the best way to prevent further disruptions to our supply chains is by making sure that people don't fall sick, by making sure that people are vaccinated. So what is happening here? I mean, we've seen stories and we've talked with people anecdotally that said, you know, I went to the grocery store and the, everything was bare. And I'm sure many of us have seen some of the photos uh, some of them, by the way, which have been uh, posted by cons- you know opposition MPs, of totally empty shelves, and that the one, especially by a conservative MP, and was found out later on that was actually a, sh- a picture that was taken in the UK. It had nothing to do with the Canadian situation, but you know you do what you do, I guess, for political gain. But let's let's try to clear up some of the myths and understand exactly what's happening and, and how we can basically maintain our sanity, I guess, through this. Pleased to welcome to the program Mike Van Massa, who is the OAC chair in food system leadership and an associate professor in food agriculture and resource economics at the university of guelph uh professor pleasure to have you on the program hope you're doing well these days i'm doing well hope you are too and thanks for having me well it's good to have you here uh just in the grocery store yesterday uh did not see i saw a couple of empty spaces on shelves but not uh the 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 descriptor that we've heard from so many other people uh that you know they can't find anything here uh the, the, the consensus I'm hearing from an awful lot of people in the industry, though, Professor, is that there's a whole series of issues that are kind of coming at once. It's almost like a perfect storm, uh, including the pandemic, by the way, which we tend to have forgotten about. That has had an impact on supply chain and, and I guess, uh, on stocking shelves in just about every facet, really since the beginning of the pandemic, hasn't it? Yep, you're right. And perfect storm is is a great way to say it. There's just a bunch of things happening at once any one of which could lead to short-term shortages at the grocery store, uh, and any one of which could be the circumstance that affected an individual person's store. I mean, we saw uh, last week uh, a big snowstorm. Even if we aren't in in COVID, big snowstorms can lead to short-term shortages in in grocery stores just because uh, we can't get groceries there. Most grocery stores don't have a whole lot of storage in the back. They get deliveries daily or every second day and if they don't get their delivery they might run out of out of something we also have people getting sick or having to isolate that can lead to delays in stocking shelves we've got just a bunch of things going on none of which in my view are going to create any sort of long-term issues uh, with respect to access to food and i think even the short-term issues we've had means maybe you can't get your favorite thing, but there's going to be something there. We're not going to go hungry here. Uh, which is how some people are characterizing it. And you're oh, right oh, for reaction. sure. As you said, it's politicized. Yeah. Uh, and look, I was going to go back to my days when I was going through college and I worked in a grocery store stocking shelves uh, back in those uh, Jurassic times. 
but I can tell you, just to reiterate your point, Professor, uh, grocery stores don't like to order boxes and boxes of, for instance, cereal, because if they're sitting back there, they have to pay for those up front. They only want to order as much as they can sell in a short period of time. That way they can make their money back on this. So you're not going to see lots of grocery stores stocking up on things like this. And you're right, if the truck gets delayed because of a snowstorm, there's not going to be any product there on uh, on Thursday. It might be there Friday, though. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that that becomes more acute. We, we heard about it in some rural areas because it's tougher to get there if there's a snowstorm. And also there are fewer options. They're a little bit further away, so it's tougher to get a truck there delayed. So uh, some of these things are just uh, just the reality of uh, of the situation because there's more of them happening and because uh, we're, we're now sort of paying much more attention to our food system. I think we become acutely aware of each individual, uh, each individual instance. Uh, and, and because we're more sensitive psychologically to shortages than to, to what is normal, we probably put more weight on them uh, than we would otherwise uh, do. And, and so I think again, to a, to a large degree, we're overreacting here. Yeah, because this is something that's going on all the time. I mean, you know, there are there are some things. I mean, how many times have I gone into a store, and it could be a Home Depot or a grocery store, uh, where such and such, it's on back order. It, it's not coming in, uh, which simply means that, you know, there's a problem with the warehouse. It's got nothing to do with the fact that, they're, you know, they can't get in. Uh, and that happens consistently all the time until stuff finally comes in. Uh, so that those are all there. But I guess when people are angry, they were looking at somebody to blame. And I guess the government's obviously the easy target for just about everybody. Uh, and, and then you've got people, as you mentioned, Professor, with their own agenda uh, that are going to use an opportunity like this to try to, to, to put forth that agenda. Yeah, I, think, I think that's exactly right, is, is we, hear, uh, we hear both sides of an argument. Oh, it's not, you know, uh, we're doing great uh, or the, the sky is falling. And the reality is, yeah, there's some bumps in the road. And, and, and I would argue that our food system has, has proven profoundly resilient in the last two years, to, despite, a, a bunch of, despite a bunch of shocks to the system. Now, don't get me wrong, as we, as we started here, there is sort of a perfect storm of things going on. So we are maybe a little bit more likely to see price increases. We're a little bit more likely to see uh, short-term shortages of some products than, than in what we would say, quote, unquote, normal times. But again, I don't think that we're anywhere near a collapse of the food system, which I've heard, or, or sort of cataclysmic uh, food security issues with respect to food access. I think price increases affect food security and affect people who, who, are, who are tight in their budgets anyway. So I don't want to I don't want to take away from that and say there's absolutely no problems. It's just if we have food security issues, it's going to be about affordability and not about access. I know some people, Professor, are trying to draw the parallel with what's happening now, with what happened in the early days of the pandemic when we saw empty shelves. But that's kind of an apples and oranges comparison, isn't it? Because I think a lot of the shortages caused back then were because of hoarding. Well, I think I think the shortages we had in, in sort of the spring of, of 2020 were partly due to hoarding. Also partly due to a, a dramatic change in, in demand. If you remember, we closed, we closed restaurants overnight. And, yeah. and before the pandemic, we spent probably, uh, you know, 30 to 40% of our, our, our income on food from prepared outside the home. All of a sudden, all that food that was being eaten in restaurants was getting bought from, from, uh, from, uh, retailers and 
<laughs> surprise the system took a while to catch up. We already talked about inventory. That inventory isn't only minimized at the store, it's minimized all the way up the chain. And so when we see this huge surge demand, that's where we got shortages. Shortages now are delays in delivery, uh, people being off with COVID either at the store or in the truck or at the processor, uh, and, and also uh, lower, uh, lower capacity. We've had, we've, we've uh, because everything is taking longer, uh, the, uh, the the capacity of trucks and railways and everything is is sort of reduced, and so that so those are some of the factors that are causing our issues right now, and, and so many other factors in this too. And I guess one of the best ways, maybe I guess, Professor, to kind of assuage some of these concerns is is to maybe ask what's going on, uh, which I did yesterday. I was at a couple of different grocery stores uh, up in our neighborhood here. Uh, and there was a shortage of cereal. And I then found that Kellogg's has been on strike for the last little while. Of course, there's going to be a shortage. They're not making cereal, uh, so, yeah, exactly. so the shelves the shelves are going to go bare until they get. I think they've settled now, but it's going to take a while to catch up. Uh, same thing with produce. Uh, they, there was uh, one lady complaining that there was no spinach. Uh, apparently, there was a COVID outbreak at the supplier in Toronto, so nobody was making spinach or you know sending it out. So there, there's, as you say, there's there's going to be a concern. But we were talking about this like a month and a half, two months ago, weren't we, Professor, about, about how inflation is starting to spike right now. And of course, prices are going to go up. Uh, it has nothing to do with any vaccine policies or anything like that. It's simply because, as you say, supply chains have been interrupted. And, and when inflation goes up, everything goes up. Yep. And, and, you know, we've had fuel price increases. We've had capacity. You know, there, there, there are lots of factors that are leading to, the, to these price increases. And, and I think the... the now, don't get me wrong, the vaccine mandate for truckers could slow things down, has the potential to increase prices a little bit, but it's been implemented so recently that blaming what's happening in stores now on, on that, A, misses the point uh, and, and doesn't let us deal with the issues we have and, and is a little bit disingenuous because, uh, because th th those mandates were just implemented. So it's, I, I think it's ridiculous to, to, to attribute it to the vaccine mandate, but the vaccine mandate could be one more sort of check mark that, that does contribute uh, to, uh, to price inflation, but it is by no means the only one, and it's by no means what's gotten us to where we are today. Professor, can we take solace in the fact that, uh, that the, the people that are running these stores, or the, the grocery stores, uh, whether it's Walmart, whether it's Sobeys, uh, whatever it is, Loblaws, are basically to a person simply saying, yeah, this is, this, this is rough right now, but we're going to get through this. This is not a crisis, as some people are characterizing it. There are going to be shortages, and there's going to be continue to be shortages uh, for some time, and we just have to be patient. But, I mean, uh, I, I guess this is adding on to the fact that we're very, very frustrated about being almost going into the third year of a pandemic right now. So we got a chip on our shoulder just to, be to begin with, don't we? I, I think we do. I think uh, we, we're tired of, of talk about COVID. We're tired of COVID restrictions. Uh, we're, we're in a uh, an extremely polarized political environment where we, we, we rarely find compromise. Uh, and I think your point about people in the food system. And it's not just the people in the stores. It is people in production. It's people, uh, you know, 90% of truckers are vaccinated and they're working their butts off to get things here. And, and, and I think, yep, we might have some, some bumps in the road with so, sort of short-term shortages, uh, but we'll always have food uh, available to eat 
and and I think if we look back over this past couple of years, as I said before, the food system has shown that is so incredibly resilient uh, with all of these shocks that that really we've had some minor inconveniences, but 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 nothing substantial. And I think uh, while we may want to do some tweaks, overall I think we should be very happy with with how the food system has performed. We talked with a number of people in the trucking industry because that's been a concern, uh, not just recently because of this, uh, the, the vaccine mandate, but I mean, we've been told uh, that there's been a shortage of drivers in the trucking industry for a, for, a few, for a few years now. This is not new to this pandemic, and it's certainly not new to vaccine mandates. Uh, this has been the problem. And as, as you mentioned, I guess this is one of those other factors. There's increased demand, but if there aren't enough people to drive the trucks, they're just not going to get the product there. Well, it's, it's exactly right. What the pandemic has, has really shown us is, is that we do have a shortage of labor, not just in, in the trucking component of, uh, uh, of the food supply chain, but in uh, you know, agricultural labor, uh, restaurants, even grocery stores. Uh, and, and we have to find ways to make those jobs more attractive. Uh, and, and part of that might be paying a little better uh, which, which will also be inflationary for food prices, but then then we won't sort of lurch from perceived crisis to perceived crisis because we're short of people. So you're right. We were short of truckers beforehand. The uh, pandemic has made it worse. People will argue that the, the vaccine mandate uh, for cross-border truckers uh, will will make it will make it worse. But the other side of the coin is if those truckers get sick, they're also not going to be working. Uh, and so th- th- there, there are there are challenges on both sides of the issue, uh, and and really the pandemic has 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 brought those labor shortages to bear uh, and made them more obvious. We're so we're going through this stuff right now, and and this is seemingly, I guess, Professor, just one more example of of the pandemic not necessarily causing a problem, but exacerbating an existing problem. As you mentioned, it could be a labor shortage. Uh, food chain, etc., was very fragile, and all of a sudden there's a there's a blockage at a port in, in Vancouver or a port in San Diego, and all of a sudden stuff's not getting here. Are we going to learn from this, or are we, when we get back to our quote unquote normal, are we just going to go back to our ways and so, simply hope this doesn't happen again? I, I think I think we'll spend uh, some time evaluating how we did, and and what we have to recognize is we can build buffer capacity into the system. Uh, so that we uh, that 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 if another pandemic happens, or if the extreme weather due to co- climate change happens, or whatever, that that we are less likely to have those disruptions. But there's a yeah, but there. Yeah, we can do that, but uh, that costs money, and so we need to assess the risk of of uh, you know assess the performance of the supply chain, assess the risk of disruptions. Uh, you know, of disruptions piling up like the perfect storm, you know, we talked about having now and say, are the costs associated with building that, that buffer capacity in uh, justified uh, given the risk of it happening? You know, so, so I think, yes, we'll take a look at it. We'll take a look at how we incentivize more people to come into all into, into working in all aspects of the food chain. Uh, we'll look at diversifying processing capacity We'll look at other factors, uh, and and I expect we'll see some changes, but we will do them in the context of the risk of a problem occurring and the cost of building that buffer capacity in. 
Well, that's our human nature coming through, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're going to say, look, at you know, we really got burned. Let's have a buffer. Let's have a safety net in case this happens again. Uh, but don't raise the cost of my cornflakes. Don't raise the cost of this. Don't raise the cost of that. And by the way, a politician, keep my taxes low, too. Uh, yeah, exactly. We got to come to the, I guess, to, to grips with the fact that you can't have it both ways. Exactly right. Professor, great having you on the show today. Thank you so much for uh, jumping in here and, and giving us some perspective on this. I really do appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me, and I hope you have a great day. You too. Take care. That's uh, Professor Mike Van Massow from the uh, University of Guelph with a, a, a more cogent picture, I guess, and clearer picture of what's going on with food chain and uh, sh- supply shortages. It's temporary, and it's a pain in the butt when it's happening, but uh, it's it's not the crisis that... Uh, some politicians would like you to believe. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk politics if we could for just a second. That uh, we know uh, about the uh, the powder keg that seems to be developing along the Ukraine border with Russian troops amassing there. Uh, there are negotiations that are ongoing, and uh, the Canadian government is trying to play a role in this. Uh, yesterday, uh, the Trudeau government announced that additional measures to help support Ukraine against uh, Russian aggression. Defense Minister Anit Anand says that uh, Canada will extend the mission to train Ukraine troops. It's called Operation Unifier by another three years. Here's the minister. With approximately $340 million, we will increase the capacity of our training mission in Ukraine, deploying up to 400 members of the Canadian Armed Forces, with up to 60 of those members being deployed in the coming days. So what role has Canada played and what can we do here? And, and well, what are the ramifications of our involvement in this? I want to talk about that and a couple of other issues I'll get to in a couple of seconds. But uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Peter Grafe, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University in Hamilton, to uh, talk with us about this. Uh, Peter, great to have you back on the show. Hope you're doing well. Oh, thank you very much. Let's talk about the, the Canada situation vis-a-vis uh, the, the crisis that's, uh, that's developing and I guess has developed already in Ukraine. I, I read a piece, this is I guess months ago at one of the NATO meetings, Peter, that uh, suggested with the uh, at that time the imminent re- retirement of uh, Man- Angela Merkel that, uh, that Canada saw that as an opportunity to take more of a leadership role in NATO uh, in, in some of these international policies, uh, the feeling being that we had maybe, uh, you know, been carrying our weight in some of these things, not just in a financial standpoint, but to, to be a player in these sorts of things. Is this an opportunity for Canada to, to increase their presence here within this organization? Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's always that opportunity, but I mean, Canada in many ways is, uh, has been an, an important contributor to, to NATO, but uh, has always been a kind of secondary player. I mean, the United States has been central in it. And of course, the, the European powers, you know, historically. Um, so, you know, Canada's participation has always been uh, important, but I mean, I've rarely kind of seen in a leadership role. And I don't really think in this moment we would expect uh, a huge change in that regard. Well, especially because, as you say, there's been a change in the U.S. administration, as we all know. And the Biden administration seems to want to take back that ownership role. I, I'm not so sure the Trump administration uh, embraced NATO to the extent that uh, that maybe NATO wanted them to. And that, that seems to have changed now. I guess that is going to have an impact on, on Canada's participation to a certain extent anyway. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, obviously, we have been seeing the expansion of NATO into the old uh, Soviet sphere of influence. And, uh, you know, Trump, uh, you know, decided he didn't want to you know, see that continue in the same manner. Uh, you know, did ask questions about the continuation uh, of NATO. Uh, I mean, Biden is really taking things back, I think, to a more traditional uh, American perspective. But, you know, there's additional issues uh, because, you know, it relies as well, too, on uh, the uh, you know European members of NATO. 
and uh, it kind of then feeds into the whole politics of the European Union and the attempts to hold that together. And so it is a difficult, uh, I think, moment for for NATO in terms of trying to develop a strategy. Well, and there's, a, as you mentioned, there's politics within the politics in this whole scenario, isn't there? I, I, even some of the European nations, even some of the NATO members, uh, are in some ways beholden to Russia for energy, for the pipeline, for a number of other things, and trade deals that have already existed. So they're treading lightly, and it's 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 a rather precarious situation. I, I, I guess people want to state their opposition to what's happening, uh, but they can be a little bit concerned about the ramifications. Uh, talk to us about the role that that we're playing here. I mean, we we talked about the fact that as Minister and I just announced uh, that they're going to extend this mission, this training mission, for another three years. Uh, in other words, have a presence there. It's not much of a presence, but they are there actually training. And they, they, we're told by uh, the Ukraine government it's been a very effective program. Uh, there's also money, $120 million, and the prime minister said there's going to be more. Uh, they've decided not to send arms, weaponry, uh, to Ukraine. Other countries, including the United States, have. Is there anything to read into that decision? Well, I mean, it seems to me that Canada has been a bit uh, skeptical about, uh, you know, really strong uh, interventions of that manner. I mean, we saw the chief of uh, defense staff back in, I think, November or December, Wayne Eyre, you know, being pretty skeptical about uh, you moving in that direction. Uh, you know, I think for, for many uh, NATO members and for NATO as a whole, there's a bit of a, a difficult situation here, because on the one hand, there's a need to show support for the Ukrainian regime. But on the other hand, if there's a desire to uh, negotiate, uh, you know, potential settlements with uh, with Russia, uh, you know, it, an overly kind of nationalist Ukrainian government that's, you know, rattling its own sabers uh, makes it harder to come to those kinds of agreements. But, you know, it's clear that Canada doesn't really want to, to go too far in providing arms in this instance. Uh, you know, in many ways, that would be the easiest things politi- politically for the, the liberal government uh, you know, particularly given the force of the Ukrainian community in parts of this country who are looking for that stronger role. So presumably they're holding back uh, for a number of strategic reasons, perhaps wanting to maintain a degree of, of flexibility in terms of uh, negotiating uh, some kind of uh, peaceful settlement. Well, and I think one of the characterizations uh, that was used in, in Minister Anand's department was uh, the most important uh, asset we can give them right now is people. In other words, these trainers. And, and we're also told there's going to be some uh, information sharing, intelligence sharing, and things of this nature uh, to try to combat things like cyber attacks, which, of course, have become one of the, the newest and most used weapons, I guess, when it comes to conflicts like this. And the Russians seem to have, uh, if, if not mastered, it's certainly doing a lot more of it than other people are. Yeah, although, I mean, you know, it's, there's a lot of, you know, interesting interesting uh, dimensions to this, because, I mean, certainly there's the idea of cyber attacks, but it's felt that perhaps one of the strongest cards held in the West is access to the SWIFT banking system and the capacity mm-hmm. to really collapse a lot of the capacity of, of Russia to participate in global uh, economic flows if that was to be withdrawn. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, the question of the dependence of, you know, Western Europe on uh, Russian natural gas, but also the uh, reliance of Russia on the revenues from selling that natural gas. So, you know, there's a there's a lot of dimensions to this that take it out of the, the realm of a pure military conflict and probably provide some hope that there will be uh, a manner of resolving this that comes short of, you know, some kind of form of invasion or war or occupation. Is there a role for Canada to play there as, a, as, a, as an intermediary? Obviously, we've taken a side with NATO, and, and that's one of the key elements, and I guess one of the key, stick, key sticking points in this whole thing. You know, one of the demands from Russia, I guess maybe even the biggest demand, is they want assurance that, uh, that Ukraine will never be allowed into NATO, and, and Canada's already stated their position uh, that they're not going to abide by, by that request uh, from the Russian government. 
but it seems as, as if the United States and, and Russia are starting to, to lock heads on this one. And I don't know if there's a whole lot of wiggle room right now. Uh, is, there, is there a role for the, for the Canadian contingent uh, to play there to try to, to find some middle ground here? Well, I mean, certainly in not sending arms, it you know does provide that kind of plausibility as being a yeah. bit of an intermediary if, if need be. Of course, on the other hand, I mean, Canada was a country that sponsored uh, Ukraine's uh, membership into NATO, you know, the idea of, of, of studying that back in 2008. So it's not clear that they'll necessarily be seen as, as an honest broker, if you like, in, in that kind of situation. If you were a betting man, Peter, <laughs> uh, whatever's going to happen with this conflict, uh, is, is there a, a chance that NATO is going to allow Ukraine in? I mean, because there are ramifications to that, too. Uh, even the United States seems reticent to, to actually make a military commitment if, in fact, uh, the Russians uh, cross the border into Ukraine. Uh, but, of course, the, 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 the ma- mantra, of course, of NATO is an attack on one is an attack on all, which means if Ukraine were a member of NATO, there would be an obligation uh, by uh, the other member nations to 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 stand behind them, wouldn't there? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think at the moment, if, you know, in a best case scenario for, for the Ukraine to uh, meet the uh, membership conditions for NATO, I mean, we'd be looking at least 15, 20 years down the road. So, you know, in many ways, this isn't something that's imminent. But, uh, you know, so if I was a betting person, I, I might well be dead by the time I could collect on the bet <laughs> if I was to say they'd be admitted. But, uh, uh, politics, like everything else, especially diplomacy, moves at glacial speed, so we'll see. Uh, well, while I got you, I just want to pivot for a second here, because I always enjoy our conversations about what's going on uh, politically back here at home. And, and as we know, there's an election, a, a provincial election coming up uh, early in June, and uh, the polling for this is, is rather interesting. And, and I guess the, the jockeying for position that's going on in here, I mean, the Ford government, of course, has a majority right now. They'd like to get reelected. And uh, we know that uh, we found out a couple of weeks ago that uh, a lot of the Ford people that worked on that first election are back in the premier's office right now, which we assume is, is gearing them up and, and trying to fashion a, a, some sort of a campaign. Uh, the Liberals, uh, uh, we found out today from a report in the Toronto Star, uh, they've actually hired a couple of folks that worked on the McGinty and Wynn campaigns and hoping that uh, I guess that lightning will strike twice or maybe three times with them and, and, and be able to propel them uh, back into government. Uh, I there's a there's a lot to, to, to unpack here. First of all, uh, you know, going from third place to, to form a government. I know that Justin Trudeau did that, but that was a rather unusual circumstance. That's a rather daunting task, given what's going on in the province right now, though, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the Liberals have the strength of brand loyalty. That if you ask people, you know, what what's their what's their political party or what party they support. You know, liberal. You know, in the not in a specific context, but just generally, what party do you identify with? The liberals uh, are regularly the strongest party. Uh, you know, and, and close to the conservatives with that. And so, I mean, they can bank on that. Uh, but you're right. The uh, the contrary issues are that they've been fairly weak in fundraising in recent years. So it's not clear how much money they'll have uh, going into the campaign. And and they do have to rebuild from a much smaller base than, than Trudeau did. So it would be quite an achievement to do that. Uh, but again, they are working from that, that brand loyalty and presumably the difficulties that the NDP has had in the pandemic of really trying to build into seats they didn't win last time, but that they would need if they were to have a shot at forming government. Uh, as usual, I, I guess the saber rattling goes on too. Uh, uh, both the NDP and the Liberals have said that uh, if the end result of this election is a minority uh, Ford government, they will not support it. That's pretty much you'd expect people to say during the campaign, isn't it? To say otherwise is basically conceding that Ford's going to win, and I don't think either one of the parties want to say that at this point. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think uh, we really have a polarization of the electorate where there's uh, the Ford and the not Ford, <laughs> and both the NDP <laughs> and the Liberals are trying to uh, get that not Ford vote, and so they want to make it clear to those voters that yeah, in a minority situation, they won't uh, support the continuation of the current government. So, uh, you know, I think that's that's an important feature of of how they're going to be competing for votes. The polling, and, and we always have to take polling with a grain of salt because oftentimes you'll get three different polls and three different results and give you very different messages. But there were two that came out the other day that I, I found were fascinating. One showed that the Conservatives uh, had a, a comfortable lead and were probably going to get reelected. They weren't sure it was going to be a majority or minority. Uh, the other one that came out uh, from Angus Reid suggested that actually the NDP had a three-and-a-half-point lead over the Ford uh, Conservative government uh, in this election, uh, which is interesting. Uh, it's not often in the last uh, few years uh, that the NDP take a lead in any polling here provincially. Uh, I, I think I, I've talked to an awful lot of people who still harbor some resentment uh, towards the NDP from way back in the Bob Ray government, the Ray days and all sorts of other uh, things that they looked at as something that was tearing this province apart. I, I think a lot of criticism is unwarranted, but it's there and it's the mindset. Do you get the sense that there's so much frustration uh, with the Ford government and the way they've handled the pandemic and a number of other issues that they've been entangled with that maybe Ontario may be ready to let the NDP out of the penalty box? I mean, I think that's a possibility. I mean, it's hard to see what new seats they were going to win that would put them into majority territory. You know, it is possible to consider that they might have a strong result that would, you know, lead them to be in the driver's seat in a, in a minority government situation. You know, particularly if you take the Angus Reid polling, which has shown the NDP to be quite strong over the past, uh, you know, four or five months. But in some ways, that's a bit of the outlier uh, in, t- in, terms of, in terms of the polling. But yeah, I mean, you know, they have the issue of getting out of the penalty box. I mean, when I was looking at, you know, all the old Wynn and McGinty hands that were being brought in to, to run the Liberal campaign, I wondered too if some of the, uh, you know, some of the people being upset with the Liberal government and some of its decisions or... Uh, you know, the idea that it knew better than Ontarians uh, was going to come back uh, and affect it, or whether bringing in someone like David Jean, uh, you know, who had been vaguely implicated in the, you know, uh, erasing hard drives as part of the gas plant scandal, you know, would lead us lead to a certain vulnerability to, to the Del Duca team of, of being seen as part of that. So yeah, I think both opposition parties have their their own closets full of skeletons that, uh, you know, will, will impede their, their ability uh, to compete. But you know, obviously, we also have a government which has kind of a much fresher set of accomplishments and failures uh, for, for Ontarians to, to make decisions about. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, if we look at the leader of favorabilities, they're all underwater. <laughs> Ontarians yeah, don't seem to, just true. to like any of them. And, uh, and I think probably for the parties, too, they find, you know, there's, there's reasons that they're a bit skeptical of all of them. Well, and I guess one of the other factors we haven't even talked about, but uh, is is the pandemic itself. I mean, the longer this thing goes on, uh, you know, the more people are going to get frustrated, and they inv- invariably blame governments for that. And uh, the government that's in the corner office in Queens Park right now is, I guess, seen that with uh, the recent re- uh, opinion, public opinion polls too. Lots of time between now and June, though, for us to talk about this, and I'm sure we'll see a lot of uh, uh, changing in some of these numbers over the last little while. Peter, always a pleasure. Thank you for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Pleasure to have you with us again. That's uh, Peter Grafe, of course, who is a professor of political science at McMaster University in Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free. 
so you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review.